popular and versatile collection of conspiracy theories are predicated on the idea that a secretive group of elites are privately orchestrating a plot to unify the world under a single government, that government controlled by this elite and their ilk. The specifics about who these people are, why they're doing what they're doing, how they're doing it, and what their endgame, their desired outcomes are, vary depending on who you talk to, though. Part of why this is such an appealing concept is that it allows us to bring seeming order to an otherwise confusing jumble of moves and countermoves by folks who run various aspects of modern society. It's also appealing because it allows us, without evidence, to position whomever we don't like as the big bad guys who are nefariously conniving and shifting pieces around the chessboard, which serves the double purpose of demonizing some other ethnic group economic class, political party, or specific individuals who we sometimes don't like because of who they are or who we don't like because they're part of another political party or ethnic group, and so on. Just as humans have been known to blame the weather on gods and spirits, we're also prone to blaming wars, plagues, economic upheavals, and other such events on people who we perceive to have godlike power. Famous people, rich people, powerful politicians, and anyone else who shows up in the news or in public discourse are common targets of folks who cleave to some permutation of this conspiracy theory. And the narratives underpinning these theories are really fascinating, as some of them are massively complex, which is part of why they're fun to engage with and think about, spanning all of human history, and in some cases beyond human history. Sometimes they involve secret organizations like the Illuminati and Freemasons. In others, it's secretive, at times immortal Nazis who survived World War II and who are now taking a different approach to world domination under the auspices of what's often referred to as the Fourth Reich. In some cases, it's the tech companies or the Jews or the Muslims building a secret world-spanning caliphate or it's aliens. Possibly reptilians who wear human masks. Possibly greys who use mind control and memory wipe technology. It really is all over the place because the central concept that there are big macro-scale things happening behind the scenes that we common folk don't and can't know about and that these things are roughly intended to unify the world in some way under a central government or other similar force is such a useful blank canvas, and one that seems to align, superficially at least, with pretty much anything that might happen in the world. Essentially anything that happens can be made to seem to fit within the parameters of this conspiracy theory. So you can adopt one of these theories as a central tenet to how you understand society and human civilization writ large. And because of how these theories are set up, it's unlikely you'll ever casually come across anything that overtly contradicts the premises they posit. And that's true of many conspiracy theories. You can't ever truly disprove them, just as you can't ever really prove them. They're foggy and ever-shifting, which is part of why they're so long-lived, but also so easy to reshape to suit our biases and suppositions about the world and other groups of people. But this narrative in particular 
tends to find its way into a lot of other conspiracy theories, like a grand unifying conspiracy medium that connects all the other ones together. Because the idea that there are secretive efforts to network the planet into some kind of international union, with much of the pipework running through spaces that the average person will never see or fully understand, isn't crazy. It's arguably exactly what's been happening for the past several hundred years, and what has happened more concretely, in some senses at least, over the past 50 years especially. There's no evidence that aliens or Jews or Nazis or Freemasons or tech magnates have anything to do with it, of course. But the central premise of a new world order coalescing and reshaping the world, and especially the framework of international law to which most nations most of the time adhere, is arguably exactly what has happened and is happening, if not in the sense typically espoused by these conspiracy theories. What I'd like to talk about today is international law, the liberal world order, and how such concepts are being challenged and upheld today. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, Russia Seeks to Halt Investor Stampede as Sanctions Hammer Economy. As I record this, we are just under a week into a military conflict that started when Russia invaded neighboring Ukraine after months of building up troops along Ukraine's borders with accompanying military hardware and supplies claiming they weren't planning to invade, but then eventually providing an excuse related to the ongoing conflict between the Ukrainian government and separatist forces in the eastern part of the country. This is not going to be an episode about the conflict as a whole, as it's still super early, and much of what is coming out about what's happening, in terms of numbers, in terms of overall movements and purposes and ambitions, is still veiled in a thick fog of war. It's tough to get accurate figures when someone is shooting at or bombing you, but everyone involved also has plenty of reason to inflate or deflate figures or outright lie for propaganda, misdirection, or strategic purposes. So while this story and all the stories swirling around it will no doubt be informing pretty much everything that happens for a while, much like the COVID pandemic has done for the past two years, this isn't a Russia-Ukraine war episode. There's too much we don't know and anything I might tell you would almost certainly have changed 20 or 30 times between me producing the episode and you hearing it anyway. Instead, I'll be pointing at some things we've already seen, things that are not dependent on a daily play-by-play, and which may soon change in their specifics, but probably not in their overarching meaning and outlines, and how these things interconnect with the global superstructure of laws and norms that have shaped much of what's taken place internationally for a good long while, a superstructure that has been challenged quite a lot and tested many times over this period, but which still, in large part, stands even today. The concept of international law, which refers to the legal structure that delineates what's okay and what's not okay when it comes to interactions and relationships between governments, and by definition, what carrots and sticks, what punishments and incentives 
make that legal structure tangible can be traced back all the way to the early days of writing, so the beginning of recorded human history. And actually, many of the earliest writings we have are direct reflections of this burgeoning legal system, complaints, accounting tallies, and receipts that show and suggest there's some kind of legal system and authority capable of enforcing that legal system, managing and sustaining the practices of trade and diplomacy between early civilizations. In most cases at this period, for the groups we have evidence for, at least, between Mesopotamian city-states, the Hittites, and the Egyptian pharaohs. The ancient Greeks were big on philosophizing about these sorts of agreements and rules as well, and a lot of their ideas were eventually adopted by the Romans, who then popularized them throughout Europe and Asia, partially through conquest and partially through the expansion of their culture and norms via trade routes. Ancient Chinese city-states likewise developed legal systems for dealing with each other, which mostly established rules for how everyone would go to war with everyone else, which was kind of their thing for a long while before they eventually unified into, roughly, their modern-day borders. And we've seen the same at different periods throughout the world on almost every continent as different groups of people set up something that worked for themselves and then had to establish rules of and norms for dealing with other groups that varied minutely or greatly from them in terms of their behaviors, beliefs, systems of governance, of economics, and pretty much everything else as well. In some cases, these rules eventually led to unification or alliances that resulted in long-lasting friendships and cultural blending. In other cases, it allowed groups to quietly hate each other without being at constant war. And in others, it simply delineated what was okay to do within the context of war and what was not okay. And in most cases, it also established what the consequences would be for doing those not-okay things. The punishments, sometimes being resource-related, and in some cases more focused on honor or prestige. If you break the rules, you have to humble yourself before the enemy, maybe compensate them in some way, or all the other groups of people in the region will begin to treat you as a rule-breaker, as an outcast, as a barbarian. What we think of as modern international law arguably began to take shape in the 15th century as the development of the printing press made the distribution of information, including legal materials, a simpler and less expensive proposition. And as trade networks began to expand at a shocking pace, due in part to evolving monetary and credit systems, and in part to fancy new ships that allowed for longer voyages and larger holds for moving people, and goods from place to place. This is a trickier thing to measure, but around this time we also started to see higher rates of literacy and overall education, which in turn seems to have informed larger populations of people who were both capable of thinking about legal systems and sharing their thoughts about them, in some cases to vast audiences of newly literate humans around the world. It should be noted that throughout history, and at this period of rapid development as well, most international legal systems were focused on and favored groups of people we considered to be like us, whomever us happened to be in a given context. So if I'm European, I'm making laws that help groups of Europeans work together, profit together, 
and generally not be at each other's throats constantly, because all the Europeans are sharing the same land and are within raiding distance of each other, and can thus benefit from not constantly killing each other. Passing such laws reinforces a sense of security, which in turn increases these groups' capacity to both profit from each other's presences and look outward, safely, more certain that they won't face as many threats back home. Thus, although great leaps had already been made in terms of how, primarily, nearby groups dealt with each other, and that's true in Europe, but also throughout Africa, Mesoamerica, Oceania, everybody was doing this to some degree throughout history, and continued doing so into the age of exploration. Although there was growth in that regard, pretty much across the span of humanity everywhere on the planet, these same considerations generally didn't expand beyond the familiar, back-at-home, nearby groups. And that dynamic is part of what allowed groups of Dutch and French and British and Portuguese to work together with each other, even as they in other spheres worked against each other, to build newly large and expansive and strong trade networks. And then go out into the world, kill a bunch of people, and take their land, and enslave huge populations, treating them like cattle rather than fellow human beings. Such blind spots can be useful to the point that we interweave them with international law, as we see in many countries' rules, traditions, and even constitutions. This determination of who is human, and therefore to whom these laws apply, who they protect, is something we conveniently bake in to many of our systems. And although over the centuries, these laws have generally evolved in the direction of expanding the circle of empathy and offering legal human status to more people, there's still some of this dynamic found in many laws and many norms globally, even today. The emergence of what's called Westphalian sovereignty is a fundamental component of our contemporary system of international law. Westphalian sovereignty is the consequence of two treaties that were signed to end a couple of multi-decade wars in Europe, and the upside is that they led to the legal and norms-based respecting of other nations' borders. And in practice, that basically means they helped establish the modern nation-state. Before this, borders were somewhat fluid and often enforced by the building of forts and stationing of troops all over the place. Rulers would have cities, but beyond those cities, they would claim overlapping swaths of land as their own. And that's part of why there were ever-present wars and almost wars throughout European history in particular. Everyone had different ideas of who owned what, and if you could send soldiers in to defend a plot of land, that land was kind of just yours. The idea, and this is an idea we take for granted today, that a group of people run by a government can own a portion of territory designated by lines on a map, and everyone would just respect those lines was new, and dramatically reduced the amount of military conflict as this new state of affairs, the concept of sovereignty and sovereign territory, took effect. This concept also provided the groundwork for modern treaty systems, because suddenly everyone knew where everyone else was and what everyone else owned, so there were fewer misunderstandings and a sturdy foundation upon which to build agreements and understandings between these more stable entities. 
Before this, the only way to enforce agreements was by force, by sending in troops and destroying and killing. Now, though, there was intangible but tangible-seeming infrastructure upon which to build out long-lasting relationships and eventually metanational systems for organizing complex arrangements related to treaties, alliances, trade negotiations, and everything else. Instead of trusting honor or faith, there were more concrete and reliable means of building out systems of a higher complexity and greater perceptual stability means that relied less on trust and more on enforceable rules. The degree to which this changed the world cannot be overstated. This is a concept that already existed in various shapes in other societies around the world, but because it came into effect in Europe at a period in which Europeans were expanding rapidly, profiting massively, and able to export their culture, including their ideas about laws, both in writing and at the barrel of a rifle, so broadly, this conception of how people and land and resources should be organized quickly became the global standard including in places where different organizational methods had long been the norm. And this is part of what has led to so much conflict in some places that were colonized by Europeans even today, because the lines drawn on the map meant to pull these far-flung locations into accord with this growing set of international standards by creating nations where previously there were no nations had little relevance to the groups occupying these lands, and in many cases, their traditions, treaties, and other norms were completely upended and disrespected by this carving up of the planet, in addition to all the resource extraction, slavery, and other abuses. The modern permutation of this model arguably came into effect at the beginning of the 20th century, and I say arguably because you could retell this entire historical tale from many different perspectives, pinpointing different developments as the key factors in how things became how they are today. And you could still be right. There's a lot going on here and a lot of moving parts. And though I'm generally sticking with the mainstream analysis here, it's also generally accepted that any such analysis will inevitably be incomplete, no matter how many threads of the human story you manage to weave into it. That in mind, although there were a great many bundles of treaties and alliances and agreements all around the world at the beginning of the 20th century, the factors that fed the First World War, including transportation and communication technologies like the telegraph and trains, new and massively more deadly weapons, and interconnected economic systems that also led to a more meshed and at times conflicting set of rules and norms, helped amplify new agreements, some of which evolved into alliances. And these are what triggered World War I, as a relatively few groups went to war with each other, and all their allies were then pulled into the same conflict, massively expanding what might have otherwise been a regional fight between relatively small groups and governments. In the aftermath of that war, looking at the staggering costs in terms of lives and economies and everything else, we saw the emergence of the League of Nations, which was meant to help promote and safeguard the security of members, but also global peace in general, by establishing an international framework by which everyone could operate and work out their differences, 
and a set of laws by which everyone involved would agree to abide, so there wouldn't be any more misunderstandings or conflicts of the kind that recently spiraled into so much devastation around the world. And that sort of worked a bit, and it started the process of expanding the concept of baseline human rights and self-determination more broadly. But then the Second World War rolled through, and many historians contend that it was, if not inevitable, nearly so, because of how World War I was brought to an end by those who won. But however it started, World War II eventually led to more thinking about how international norms and laws might be upgraded to make things more stable and peaceful and equitable, while also continuing to allow individual governments to manage things generally however they please within their own borders. The United Nations is the descendant of the League of Nations, and it operates according to very similar principles with the added ambition of supporting human rights and preventing nuclear war, which became a real concern post-World War II, and even more so with the advent of the Cold War, which was a period of about 50 years from the end of World War II until the collapse of the Soviet Union, during which there was a standoff between the U.S. and its allies and Russia and its allies which maintained an ever-present threat of nuclear war if anyone stepped out of line or did something that the other side found threatening. Because it was theoretically possible for one side in this conflict to end the other side, wiping them completely off the map before the side being attacked could even respond, tensions were super high, and the entire global legal and diplomatic apparatus became focused on ensuring there were pressure valves and opportunities for anyone who felt threatened to sit down with those they felt were threatening them, to talk it out, to negotiate, and to bare minimum reassure themselves that they were not about to be nuked into non-existence. The UN today still plays that role. And though it also engages in a lot of other activities, like helping negotiate local conflicts, serving as a central arbiter for human rights issues, and providing support for multinational issues like research related to climate change, it also still serves as a central location where nations can complain, discuss, work things out, and generally come to accords with each other, rather than going to war. And ultimately... It's also a mechanism through which a bunch of nations can gang up on another nation or alliance of nations if they need to. For instance, if some country ever threatened to or decided to nuke another country, there's a good chance that a decision to work together to stop that aggressor country would begin in the United Nations. Now this system, as it exists today, is imperfect. It's also heavily biased toward a small collection of large, wealthy, and powerful nations which have veto power and other benefits that their fellow UN member nations do not have. There's a cynical angle to some of this then, which makes international arbiters like the UN seem, in some ways, a bit like those old-school alliances between European nations that were great for helping the Dutch and English trade rather than fight with each other all the time but not so great for all the people they were killing and enslaving. The UN is, in most ways, way, way better than those earlier versions of international legal organizations, but it's far from perfect. The world that this sort of organization has helped create is sometimes referred to as the liberal international order, because it is broadly 
rules-based, and structured around concepts favored by economic and political liberalism, which is different from liberal in the political party sense. It basically means supportive of and predicated on capitalistic interconnections between various entities and the idea of life, liberty, and the consent of the governed. Most democratic or even pseudo-democratic states in the world are liberal in this sense of the term all of which has been pretty great for nations that adhere to those practices, at least to some degree, and generally for individual human beings, who in theory, if not always in practice, have a lot more rights and liberties than they used to. But it's all been less great for nations that have authoritarian or monarchical or non-capitalistic leanings in their operations or ideologies. All that said, though, the UN and other organizations, from big trade organizations to big military alliances like NATO, which was created in the midst of the Cold War to counter potential aggression, from the Soviet Union, which didn't even try to hide the fact that it believed it would someday have all of Europe as part of its territory, these alliances have created a scaffolding for a modern system of rules and laws and norms, allowing them to grow and evolve. And within that scaffolding, we have formal contractual understandings, like those that exist between NATO nations, that if one is attacked, the others will come to their aid, and we have understandings that are more predicated on tradition and cultural mores, like the understanding that the Swiss will remain neutral in any military conflict, and that the Germans, post-World War II, will remain largely demilitarized and will generally favor decisions that prioritize the economy over defense. Looping around to that piece in Reuters, at the moment, we are seeing a land war in Europe, which is incredibly unusual in modern times, post-World War II, and from some perspectives, a deviation from or a violation of the contemporary international rule of law. Ukraine is an independent country and has been since the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, and thus, according to these laws, should enjoy the same default sovereignty any other nation enjoys. And that sovereignty means, among other things, neighboring countries should not be able to just move soldiers and tanks into their territory and start blowing stuff up, demanding they surrender, and potentially swapping out their existing democratically elected government with one that is more to the liking of the invading country. Now you could point at other conflicts since the emergence of the UN and even since the collapse of the Soviet Union, where big-name players in that larger international system like the U.S., have done similar things, basically just rolling into another sovereign nation and doing what they like, including but not limited to replacing the government with a government they like better. And that would be true. Excuses are given and justifications are provided, but that such countries, again including the U.S., often point at the international legal system when others do the same, when others invade countries and demand we all respect human rights and each other's borders, when they do this, it often looks like hypocrisy. And though efforts are often made to dress these invasions up and justify them and make them look like something else, such justifications tend to be more decorative than anything.
You could absolutely say, well, the U.S. and other such generally law-abiding good guy nations can do these sorts of things because they're different from Russia and other non-law-abiding bad guy nations. But that arguably weakens these interconnected systems of peace and stability, both in the sense that it makes them seem more biased and less supportive of human rights and other such values, more inclined to maintain the positions of a small faction of countries and governments than anything else, but also because it provides a loophole for other nations to do the same. Case in point, Russian President Putin justified this most recent, by all accounts, unprovoked attack on Ukraine by manufacturing a flimsy, factually unsupported story about how Russian-speaking people are experiencing what he calls ethnic cleansing in the eastern portion of Ukraine. Again, there's zero evidence for any of this, but he can still say it, and in doing so, his actions are superficially similar to those taken by other countries, with purportedly better justifications for invasion. So while this new justification was demonstrably untrue, does it matter? Within the context of the global legal system of which they're a part, history has taught them that as long as they can justify an attack in this way, provide an excuse that some people will believe, they can probably get away with it. One of the major meta-stories of the early days of this invasion, as a consequence, has been how porous such systems can be, despite remaining relatively stable in other regards. Some aspects of these rules and norms remain, most of them, so far at least, actually, which is why European Union member nations and the U.S. have refused to directly attack Russia instead opting to work out convoluted methods of supplying Ukrainians with weapons and jet fighters and other resources. This is not hoop-jumping for the sake of hoop-jumping. Many international spectators and the Ukrainian leadership have asked the rest of the world to come to the Ukrainians' aid in the face of unprovoked, overwhelming aggression from Russia. But the international norm of nuclear weapon-wielding powers not directly attacking each other still stands, at least as of the day I'm recording this. And that norm exists and is supported by all involved sides most of the time, because if the U.S. and Russia, or the U.S. and China, or some other combination therein were to get involved in a direct shooting war, other norms suggest that at some point, a relatively small attack would need to be met with a relatively larger one, which would then be met with a relatively larger one, until at some point, a misunderstanding or logical step in the escalatory process could lead to the deployment of a nuclear weapon, which could in turn lead to a lot of destruction, and at the extreme end of things, the end of modern human civilization and a significant chunk of the non-human environment as well. Because so many nations in this area are connected to each other by alliances like NATO, the same concern applies to, for instance, Germany or Poland, who, if attacked by Russia, would trigger a necessary countermove by all of NATO, including the U.S., and the same is true in reverse, where a direct attack by Poland could necessitate a face-saving counterattack by Russia, any of these entities hitting the wrong other entity directly could then trigger a very bad spiral of tit-for-tat moves. 
So to avoid that potentiality, we're seeing the leveraging of complex and convoluted economic weaponry, the shipping of weapons and other resources from Western nations to Ukraine, Russia's exclusion and expulsion from international organizations and networks, including sports leagues and all sorts of other attacks that are not direct attacks so as not to further diminish or deviate from those still standing international standards of operation. The wiggle room within these standards, though, has already been shown to be substantial in the context of this conflict. And that's true of Russia's invasion, which arguably was meant to challenge and perhaps end some of these norms, while also staying within the auspices of some of the larger ones. But it's also true of Germany's decision to start shipping weapons to conflict zones, which they generally do not do and their decision to start amping up their military spending, which is a huge deviation from their mode of operation since World War II. Likewise, Switzerland, famous for its neutrality, has decided to start putting blocks on resources owned by Russians and the Russian government in Swiss-held banks, banks that are notorious for holding funds for all sorts of ostracized governments and criminal organizations. But now, in this moment, they are breaking with their long-time norms, which deviates in some ways from the understood way things operate, but also helps maintain international standards. There's a realignment of sorts happening then, and everyone's operating as if they want to maintain many of the most vital components of these international systems, the ones that prevent nuclear war in particular while at the same time testing the malleability of the ties that otherwise bind them to certain ways of behaving. There is a chance, then, that we may see more significant tweaks and realignments within these systems and the nations to which they apply in the coming weeks and months. The conflict in Ukraine, the ground war itself, could end sooner than that. But the repercussions of it having happened in the first place will likely be long-lasting and could take many years to fully shake out and integrate into our sense of how things should and will function moving forward. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World by Tim Marshall. This book is less about actual cartography than I assumed it would be going into it, and more about 10 different regions that look likely to become flashpoints in the near future. And in all cases, those potential flashpoints are at least partially the consequence of the geography itself, of where countries happen to be located, of natural resources, of something related to the ground upon which fighting might occur or mass migrations might happen. There's a lot of ground covered in this book. But the idea is that these are locations that because of what the locations are or where they are or who happens to be there or how they've been carved up or the way things operate there, there is ostensibly a better chance of something dramatic or context changing happening in these locations as a consequence. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Power of Geography by Tim Marshall. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work, including other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.